0: This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America... Here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Well, hello and welcome to a new episode of Pandemic Planet. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS, and I'm joined today by Ken Staley, a senior associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. A physician by training, Ken served at the U.S. Department of State and on the Homeland Security Council at the White House under President George W. Bush. He worked at Medtronic to expand access to medical devices in lower and middle-income countries. And in his role at McKinsey & Company, he advised private and public sector actors responding to outbreaks of infectious disease, including the 2014-2015 Ebola outbreak in West Africa and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. More recently, from 2018 to 2021, Ken led the work of the President's Malaria Initiative, PMI, at the U.S. Agency for International Development, before directing the agency's COVID-19 task force under the administration of President Donald Trump. Today, we'll discuss what it will take to really accelerate progress in addressing and possibly eliminating malaria as a public health threat, How the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted work on malaria and other infectious diseases by shifting resources and personnel away from routine services. What Ken learned while coordinating USAID's response to COVID-19 in 2020, as information about the novel coronavirus continued to unfold, and what he sees as the prospects for coming together as a global community to be better prepared in the event of future pandemics. Ken, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Catherine, thanks very much for having me. So, you and I met and interacted some at the State Department back in the early 2000s when I was a fellow in the Bureau of Oceans, Environment and Science, and you were working on arms control issues. Now, coming into the State Department as a fellow is pretty routine. There are AAAS fellows, which is the American Academy or Association for the Advancement of Science, Presidential Management fellows, Jefferson fellows, and I'm sure many other kinds of fellows. But you went to medical school before becoming a fellow, which is not such a routine or direct path to international relations or national security. So I wanted to ask you to describe your your path into global health and foreign policy and explain how you came to oversee work at USAID on malaria and then the COVID-19 response as the pandemic got underway.
1: Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I joined the federal government as as a presidential management fellow at the State Department. And I came to the State Department after doing a joint degree, so I did an MD, and at the same dot time I did a Master's in Public Administration at, the, at Harvard's Kennedy School. And there I focused a lot on international relations, national security, and leadership. And so what I was interested in doing when I graduated from both programs was finding an opportunity to be able to put my scientific knowledge to, to work and be in the realm of international affairs. And that fellowship provided a great introduction. So I think here, Catherine, is where we shamelessly plug the need for more scientists actually to be in the government and for folks with scientific backgrounds to think about ways that they can become part of the federal government. As you mentioned, there's there's a lot of fellowship opportunities out there for folks. I think you also asked about how I came to be the Global Malaria Coordinator. So as you mentioned, I was in the private sector for about eight years. And I was when I was approached about becoming the the Global Malaria Coordinator. It was a combination of my scientific background, the work I'd done on public health and national security, and then some of my experiences in the private sector running organizations. So all three of those, I think, contributed to the reasons that people approached me about becoming the PMI Coordinator. And, you know, it's one of the best jobs in global health. So there were no second thoughts about taking it on.
0: So I think you were just actually the second coordinator of the President's Malaria Initiative since the program was founded in 2005. And so that, that's, that's pretty impressive over a 13-year period, you know, to just really have two, two coordinators coming into that. You know, PMI brings together USAID and CDC, and it has operations in, I think, nearly 30 countries, both in sub-Saharan Africa and in the greater Mekong region in Asia. And in 2017, I guess just before you assumed your role, it had a budget of more than $700 million. So I wanted to ask, you know, you said it was one of the greatest jobs in federal government. What aspects of PMI did you find most compelling? And as you settled into the work, did you find yourself wanting to put on your consultant cap and identify opportunities for improvement and addressing some of the challenges or bottlenecks that you saw?
1: Sure, sure. Well, you know, I think the impact we are having at PMI and the impact that we've had over the last 15 years really has to be the first and most engaging part of the job. But close second is the dedicated group of people that we get to work with, both at PMI and then in our host countries. You really won't find a more mission driven set of people. And that's, that's energizing. And the change we've been able to bring about is really inspiring. You know, I think whenever I get the chance to talk about PMI and people ask about what we've accomplished, i like to take a step back and talk to people about where we were at the turn of this century. So there were a lot of people at the turn of this century who were saying that they they really questioned whether or not it was actually possible to control malaria effectively in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was causing over half of healthcare visits in sub-Saharan Africa. And we saw kids dying every 45 seconds, which means that We had almost a million deaths a year, mostly from young children. So, you know, that's where we started. And early on in my own experience as coordinator, I visited Uganda. And I I always think stories illustrate impact in, in some of the best ways possible. So I was in rural Uganda and I met Brian, a kid who had just turned three. And a few days before that, he had been bitten by an infected mosquito his mom had to leave four other kids at home and carry him an hour to a clinic where, because they had PMI and Global Fund support and support from the host government, they were able to administer a rapid diagnostic test and figure out that Brian had malaria. They had life-saving malaria commodities on hand to give to Brian. And, And I saw Brian three days after that visit. He was running around the village. And I also could look into his hut and I could see a mosquito net that was in his hut that he was going to sleep under so that he wasn't infected again while sleeping. You know, I think Brian's story is a great example of one of the best achievements in public health in the last 20 years. You know, there are seven and a half million Bryans that have been saved by our global efforts to eradicate malaria. And there's over a billion cases of malaria that have been averted. And really, I think the community itself is focused now on eradication. So the mission and the impact we've been able to have is is first and foremost. You also asked me about how I thought about building more or building better when we when I came to PMI. There are two areas I think are worth mentioning here. One was to get to the next level on data and to improve our operations over time with the data that we were that we were using. And then second to expand our partnerships. So with regard to data Many times in malaria, what we're doing is we're looking in the rearview mirror at data that was collected a year and and two years before. So our ability to make decisions based on data has been really limited. So over the course of my time as coordinator, we were able to build a cloud-based system, really the first of its kind, which aggregates data from really around the globe from a number of different organizations. PMI contributes financial information, supply chain data, host countries contribute surveillance data, We have population and climate data that's contributed by other partners. And by bringing it all together, over time, we are iteratively making better decisions closer to real time that's allowing us to make every dollar go further. I think the second area that I thought we had really, we had an opportunity to strengthen PMI was partnerships. So I'm really proud of the partnerships that we were able to create with the Gates Foundation and with the Global Fund. On the Gates Foundation side, working with uh, Philip Welkoff and his team, we worked a lot on data capacity building and promoting the use of real time data collection in the field, as well as a number of new vector control technologies. On the global fund side, in terms of partnerships with Peter Sands and his team, we've been able to increase our data sharing in ways that have really enhanced our planning with host countries. So, you know, the global fund has a three year planning cycle, PMI plans in yearly increments and None of the plans that each of the host countries have are, sing- are, are the same as what the Global Fund and PMI are thinking about. So the fact that, Global Fu- that the Global Fund and PMI are talking more and sharing more on the front end means that it's easier for host countries to plan effectively with the resources that they have available. So I think, you know, over time, that collaboration with the Global Fund, too, will allow us to evaluate our outcomes more effectively and to figure out how we can use our dollars more effectively effectively. Each year.
0: So it sounds like, you know, on the one hand, really being able to provide rapid diagnostics and initiate someone on treatment and see those results very quickly, you know, is something that is contributing to significant progress on addressing malaria, including as well the greater ability to gather, process, analyze, and share data about current conditions, not just looking in retrospect. We know that. By, by 2019, you know, the Lancet Commission really came together and put out a report laying out a hopeful vision for the eradication of malaria by 2050 I and mean, really bringing many of these different elements together. But as that report came out and we headed toward what we didn't know at the time was going to happen in 2020, progress on malaria was a bit mixed. I mean, there had been, as you pointed out, significant declines in incidence and death in, in many places but in other places plateau or even increasing numbers of cases and, and increasing drug resistance in many areas as well. So now as the pandemic has disrupted services and access to services and financing and, and planning and so many other elements really important to that eradication vision, And I just wanted to ask where do you see things now post-2020 in the fight to eradicate malaria? And considering the disruptive impacts that COVID has had on economies and health services, do you still see that vision of eradication by 2050 as possible?
1: Maybe I'll answer your last question first. I absolutely think that the goal of eradication by 2050 is is possible. I I think I would probably break this down into thinking about how we're doing on malaria generally, and then the impact of COVID, and and maybe we could delve a little bit more into the impact of COVID. But if you look at what's occurred in the last 10 years or so. One of the untold stories that people haven't realized, which is I think is a great news story, is the fact that between 2010 and and now, many countries that we are working with have had a 25% increase in population. And over that same time, the amount we're spending in each of those countries has pretty much remained the same. And the number of reported cases has decreased. So that means we're actually becoming much more efficient with the way we're using our dollars. So we're covering more people with less resources per person and having a significant impact. Now, that's that's the good news. I think over the horizon, some of the most exciting things, you've mentioned them, some of the rapid diagnostic tests that have readers associated with them and, and real-time information collection, a new vaccine that was recently announced that seems to be significantly better than RTSS. And If you look across the globe, a continued march of countries that are declaring themselves malaria free with the WHO. So that's all good news. I think you mentioned challenges that we're we're not seeing declines as quickly as we'd like. And I, I don't think we completely understand what's happening. One of the areas I think that's of most concern is insecticide resistance. So we have reduced the parasite burden per 1,000 people in many of the countries where we serve by by almost half over the last decade, which is substantial. But we are also detecting a lot of insecticide resistance. And so we think that that may be one of the drivers. And, and the biggest gap of them all, I think, is funding. So we spend about $3 billion per year. And for many years now, there's been a $6 billion target. So there's a funding gap, there's insecticide resistance, and there are challenges. Uh, so So I'd come back, though, to my top line. It is possible for us to do this. It is possible for us to do this. Um, I guess one of the other ways that you wanted to, one of the things you wanted to talk about was sort of how, how I see all of the community needing to work together. And I think if you look at what the Lancet Commission has said, and generally at public health, uh... We've had steady improvement in health outcomes since 1900, mostly based on economic improvements. So our trick is to make sure that whatever investments we make bend the curve on a disease faster than economic improvement otherwise would. I think the Lancet Commission really focused on four things, staying on target, resisting the desire to focus on a health system instead of a specific disease with a very specific target, asking countries that have malaria to put more resources in, and then having better collection and use of data. And to go along with that, emphasizing management. So the discipline of management hasn't always been emphasized in public health, and that's something that we really need to change over time to be more effective in eradicating. Now, you mentioned COVID as well, and I could jump into that if that's, if that's helpful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds, based on what you just said, you know, the four pieces outlined in the Lancet Commission, I mean, improved management, greater resources, really focusing on the disease as opposed to health systems and others, and not just waiting for economic improvements to facilitate lower transmission of disease. I mean, all of that has really been very much impacted by COVID. And, you know, we've seen health workers diverted from all kinds of routine services to outbreak response. Uh, We've seen families afraid to come to the clinic because they you know, are worried they'll get sick or they're worried they have COVID and they don't want to find that out or, you know, all, all kinds of different reasons that, that things have been disrupted. And then, of course, so many countries are now in debt and, and the economies are disrupted worldwide. So where do you see uh, work on malaria progressing in, in this current context?
1: Again, I think there's a, short, there's a shorter term and a longer term question about how we adapt. When COVID first became a pandemic, there were some really dire projections about what would occur vis-a-vis malaria and other existing infectious diseases. One of the first issues was technical guidance, really understanding how we deal with an ask of people to come in when they have a fever for malaria versus an ask for people to socially distance themselves if they were potentially infected in some of our resource low resource environments. So I think the PMI and others did a really good job of creating global guidance in that context. And I think the supply chains that we had did a very good job of working across countries to ensure that we were able to monitor and track commodities to make sure that we were delivering them on time. All of us have had supply chain disruptions in our own lives this year. They were very good, I think, at working with countries where we have manufacturing for malaria commodities to make sure that that manufacturing continued during the pandemic. So I think in the short term, at least, the malaria community has done a really good job. So for PMI, I think it was bed nets went to all 13 countries where we were trying to distribute bed nets. 11 of the 12 countries where indoor residual spraying was meant to take place, actually it, it actually occurred. And we haven't seen some of the spikes in malaria that were first predicted. But I think if we look at what that, has meant, first and foremost, it's been a 15 to 25% increase in costs that will lead to less coverage. And as you mentioned, we've seen reduced care seeking, because people are concerned sometimes about going to healthcare facilities. And just as importantly, we've seen some healthcare workers get sick from COVID. And so we've had to shut down operations in some places. So I think over time, the need to address COVID in all of these countries is going to be critical to making sure that we stay on track with
0: malaria. So I want to I shift to COVID now at this point. We'll come back to malaria a little bit later, but I'd like to ask you to reflect on your work coordinating the USAID response to COVID-19, you know, which in 2020, it was a completely new outbreak. There were so many unknowns. And at least early on, COVID seemed to be having an impact in countries where USAID doesn't typically work like, like Italy. <laughs> so what, what do you feel as you look back that the U.S. got right You know, during those early, early and, I guess, later months of 2020? Where were there gaps in the U.S. response? And are there aspects of the U.S. global response that could have been done better early on?
1: Sure. So you know, I think from a USAID perspective, really, there were three big objectives. First was keeping people safe. Second was ensuring continuity of operations. And third was then responding to the pandemic. And I think From a USAID perspective, we evacuated almost 40% of our people from 100 countries, and we were able to do that safely and efficiently. On the flip side, there were some capability gaps at USAID. For example, the need for a 24-7 ops center that we were able to create. When it came to continuity of operations, I told you a little bit about what the supply chain teams have been doing. I can't emphasize enough how important it was that USAID and the CIO, the chief information officer, had made investments over time. So that almost at the flip of a switch, the entire USAID workforce in all countries around the world was able to go to a virtual environment and operate from wherever they were with an internet connection. That was incredibly important for our continuity. And then the third area from a programming perspective, there was $1.3 billion in aid that was on offer. And I think one of the, one of the shining spots for us was having the famine early warning system, the FUSE system, identify the fact that there were urban areas that were going to be at risk of famine and being able to respond very quickly to that. On the health side, we had almost 9,000 ventilators go to 40 countries uh, in less than six months. That's probably the biggest logistical challenge that the supply chain team at USAID has, has really ever faced, and they, they came through really effectively. When you think about some of the ongoing opportunities we have, the first thing you have to say is $1.3 billion is going to help, but it wasn't going to solve everything. And so in any of these policy contexts, you have you have debates among people about what the best way to allocate resources is. But if I'm to look back on the health side, you know, I think there are there were opportunities, there are opportunities to enhance oxygen capacity uh, for countries. O- additional oxygen capacity can really make a difference for a lot of people's clinical course. Um, I think from a um, from an operational standpoint, there were some challenges getting money out the door quickly in some cases. And so for our disaster assistance funds, I think we had a very good established process that had to be streamlined. And that's something USAID is, is still working on, I think, uh, streamlining. From a global health perspective, we had some challenges. And I think that was because we need more people Perhaps reallocated to finance functions and really being able to to help move our money more quickly. I think that one of the issues that we will continue to see, not just for this pandemic, but more broadly in foreign assistance is the use of information. So we had an unprecedented Chinese disinformation campaign that began during the COVID, during the outbreak in March of last year and continues. And I think if you look at what each individual department and agency did, uh, they, they were each very successful in doing what we have done in the past. The question, though, is how we actually come up with a more cohesive message that cuts across all of what the USG is doing to help countries and helps provide a, a very strong contrast between the hand up that we're willing to give countries uh, versus, I think, what the Chinese are offering. So I think those are, those are some areas where I think we did well, some areas where we could have had, uh, where, where there were some improvement opportunities or additional opportunities now. And I think where we're going.
0: You described some of the, the early moments and then some of the, the ways in which you were working both with U.S. personnel, that continuity of operations, and then also support for partner countries around the world. Yeah, I just wanted to ask what your sense of the current trajectory of U.S. engagement on COVID-19 is. In January, after assuming office, President Biden and his team have said the U.S. will remain with the World Health Organization. The U.S. has now joined COVAX, which is the vaccine pillar of the access to COVID tools accelerator. Uh, The U.S. has now committed $4 billion, you know, which happened in December, but I think that money is, is now going out the door, to COVAX through Gavi, has loaned vaccines to Canada and Mexico. And President Biden announced the U.S. would purchase 500 million doses of the Pfizer-produced vaccine to donate to lower and middle-income countries through COVAX and bilaterally. And then, you know, more recently, the G7 countries pledged to donate or purchase millions of additional vaccines. So you were working on planning for some of those issues around COVID-19 vaccine distribution while on the task force. Do you see these efforts as sufficient? Are they lacking? What more needs to be done, in your view, to deal with the problem of of supply and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines? Well, the first
1: thing I'd say is that Richard Hatchett and Seth Berkley deserve an enormous amount of credit for envisioning COVAX and bringing it off the ground
0: to the point where it is today, uh, it increased. So just just for our listeners who probably know that Richard Hatchett, CEO of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation and Seth Berkeley at Gavi, the vaccine along-
1: right. alliance. Right. Right. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I think in using the COVAX facility and increasing vaccinations through COVAX is is good, period. I think as we look forward, you know, we're always going to have new obstacles to overcome. The first obstacle tactically will be capacity issues for the countries where these vaccines are going. So just to put this just to sort of put this in context, during flu season in the United States, we vaccinate 1 million people per day about. Now, even with that capacity, we've had challenges. We've had to muster a lot of extra resources to try to vaccinate people with this vaccine. And so that same that same challenge will be present in many of the countries that this vaccine is headed for. So There are implementation challenges that we'll have in the future, not insurmountable, but those need to be addressed. I think that the the biggest issue remains, and it's not an original thought on my part, but as long as we have a pandemic disease circulating anywhere, we have a threat everywhere. And so in many ways, this is a race against time. The best defense we have is actually getting as much vaccine out to as many people as possible to reduce the risk of mutation and new variants that may put all of us at risk.
0: I want to wrap up here by looking ahead a little bit. The Global Fund to fight AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis, you know, as you mentioned, puts out a new strategy every three years. It's putting out a new one this year. It's been in consultations, and you know, people have had an opportunity to weigh in. The board is expected to to approve and release this new strategy, I think, in November, and they have a replenishment coming up in in 2023. And so one question is, you know, kind of looking at the world of malaria and malaria eradication and thinking about all the funding and focus that has really had to be trained on the COVID pandemic. How optimistic are you that there will be sufficient global funding to make progress on malaria eradication in the next phase? And then I would also ask your views on the fund's increasing engagement on health security issues. You know, early on in the pandemic, Global Fund, Gavi, and other agencies really allowed countries to divert the support they were receiving for health system strengthening to outbreak response. And so with the launch of the ACT Accelerator, the Global Fund is working on COVID-19 diagnostics and the health systems pillar. And so, you know, as as the fund experiences this kind of pressure to expand around health systems and, and be very much engaged in health security, do you see the focus on AIDS, TB, and malaria becoming more of an element of health security, or or should should these, these areas kind of remain separate as, as we focus on pandemic preparedness in the longer term? So two questions. Then.
1: Yeah, or maybe even three. So I'll, I'll try and tackle Great. them sort of sequentially. So I'll talk about the replenishment, I'll talk about the strategy a little bit, and then I'll try to wrap it with a connection to, uh, to global health security. So I think first on replenishment, um, In the current context, everyone understands and is aware of the need for health security and the important role that the Global Fund plays, period. So I think that leaders and countries will recognize that the next replenishment is critical. There's never been a time in our lifetimes where people have understood the importance of health more. On the strategy, I think one of the most challenging aspects right now of the strategy or controversial aspects is a question about the disease split between the three diseases. and there is. One part of the community that is really advocating for a reduction in malaria funding and an increase in funding for TB, I would say um, that that is a bit wrongheaded. I think many are advocating for an increase in spending in TB at the expense of malaria with an idea that the problem is there isn't money to spend on TB. I think the biggest problem is not a lack of funds for TB. It's actually government decisions in wealthy countries not to address the TB problem. And that's very different than the problem we have for malaria. So malaria is concentrated in the poorest nations where there's very challenging operating environments and very low GDPs. So the amount that governments can devote to malaria isn't as significant as more wealthy governments who could devote more funding and effort to TB eradication. Then on the way in which the Global Fund works on global health security, I think there's been a bit of a false dichotomy created because the Global Fund is a critical player in global health, full stop. And so they should be at the table when we're talking about the ACT Accelerator, et cetera. But let me give an example from malaria and then relate it back to, I think, the current discussion. So in 2017 in Madagascar, there was a plague outbreak. And- We don't have people devoted to plague all the time, but we have people who are working on malaria all the time. And we have the Institute Pasteur in Madagascar. So PMI and the Institute Pasteur and the government of Madagascar all repurposed existing capacities. We used PMI supply chains to provide uh, medical materials to to villages in remote areas during the plague outbreak. So I think that's that's a very clear example of existing assets that have been developed over time for one of the world's biggest killers that can very quickly be repurposed for other diseases when necessary. So I think it's with that sort of mindset that you want to think about what the Global Fund can do. So I, I think just as a big headline statement, the primary focus for the Global Fund has to be on ending the three diseases. But When you focus on those diseases, the investment itself can be a contribution to global health security if it's done right. So let's take fever. Fever is one of the best syndromic indicators that we have. And nearly 40 percent of fevers in sub-Saharan Africa still go undiagnosed. So fever is one of the reasons that people seek care for malaria. If more people in more in remote areas can be diag, we can diagnose the cause of fevers and we can track the incidence of fevers over time, we will have set up a better surveillance system and the ability to detect anomalies more quickly. So I think we should continue to develop those types of capacities. I think the challenge comes when we speak more generally about global health security or health system strengthening. And we get away from really precise targets and capabilities that are going to be used every day. The the solution there is pretty easy. I think it's it's transparency and levels of funding, and it's transparency about in decisions about how those funds are used. And I think that then you have a really a really powerful way of making more of an impact over time.
0: So it sounds like the aspects of global fund investments over the last 20 or so years around disease surveillance, diagnostics, supply chain, and, and even just encouraging people to, you know, behavior change, to seek care are all elements that can both improve health in a particular, on particular diseases in a particular context, but also be rapidly adapted and really contribute to that kind of resilience of the system in the long term.
1: Absolutely. Very well said. Very well said.
0: Well, Ken Staley, Senior Associate at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, thank you very much for speaking with me today, and good luck in your endeavors in the year ahead. Thanks very much,
1: Catherine. It was a pleasure to be
0: here. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog